You can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, and we'll begin there. I'll get there in a second. Um, just wanted to preface this sermon just by saying this, that of the many things that I think that can distract Christians and derail Christians in their Christian walk with God, I think perhaps one of the most subtle and but is there, and it's always there, one of the most prevalent dangers is, is the danger of narcissus. <laughs> you may not know what that is. That's okay. That's a made-up word. I didn't make it up, but... Another guy did, and you can make up words if you can define them. So I'm going to define it for you right now. Um, in biblical hermeneutics, which is Bible interpretation, interpreting the Bible, I think there are three categories, three main categories of biblical hermeneutics. And the first one is what Pastor Blaylock does here every single Sunday, every single Wednesday. That's called exegesis. That's really just seeing the text and letting it say what it says, and that's what you say. You don't bring anything to it from yourself. You're just letting the Bible really speak for itself. That's exegesis. There's also another way and that, uh, that's prevalent today and that a lot of pastors do it. It's called eisegesis. Eisegesis is where you're reading into the text. You're making the text say what you want it to say. You're bringing all your bias and all your preconceived notions and that's what you're making the text say. And then there's a third one that's not as well-known, but it's just practice, and people don't even realize that they're doing it. It's called narcissus, and this is making the Bible all about you. It makes the Bible all about you, and it's really a selfish way to read the Bible. And I just want to say that, <coughs> by the way, that's narcissizing the Bible is what's that, you know, that, I'm not going to say his name, but that pastor out in Houston, that's what he does. That's called narcissus. <laughs> but let me say something. The Bible is not about you. That may be a hard fact to accept, but it's not. It's about Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer, who came to save us from our sins. The Bible is all about Jesus. Every page points to Jesus. Every promise points to Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, the coming Redeemer. God's Word is really a revelation, redemption, that reveals a Redeemer. It promises a Savior, the one who would raise the dead. And it's not a collection of stories. It's not just a collection of all these, you know, glorified Aesop's fables. It's the, the grand unfolding of one story, the story of a redeemer. And so the climax and fulfillment of every theme in the Bible is Jesus Christ. As Paul says, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what we should be looking for as we are reading the Bible, is seeing how does this point to Jesus? How does this get me to Jesus? As Spurgeon famously said, you're not preaching, and you're, you're, it's not a sermon until you get to Jesus. And it's in that like manner that I think that we have interpreted some of the passages in the Bible incorrectly, especially so here where we are in Luke chapter 10. We're going to read tonight the parable of the prodigal, or not the prodigal son, excuse me, <laughs> the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, I'm sure you're familiar with this parable. Luke chapter 10, we'll begin our reading of verse 29. So how does this story point us to Jesus? That's what we want to find out tonight. Luke chapter 10, verse 29, we will begin. But he that is a certain lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So this lawyer, he gets up, and a lawyer is really this scribe. He's an expert, a self-proclaimed expert on the law. And he was one who would expound it and teach it and make sure everyone knew what it was saying. And he would, that's what his job was. And so he says, who is my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus, this sparks him to tell this story, as we know it as the Good Samaritan, verse 30. 
And Jesus answering said, And a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. So first of all, so this Jew is going to Jericho from Jerusalem and that this is a famous route down because it descends 3,200 feet for 17 miles down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this was the most direct route. There were other routes from the city of Jerusalem down to Jericho, but this was the most direct route. So it was the most commonly used. But also, because of the terrain, it was very rocky, very steep. It made it just a haven for thieves and robbers. It was a, just, a, just a proving or just a ground of people that would just mug other people. So much so that ancient historian Josephus, Josephus called it the bloody way, just because it was known for people getting mugged and robbed and just left, as this guy was, left half dead, as it says. And so he just gets ambushed. He gets pummeled by these thieves, and they rob him, and they strip him, and they just leave him there to lie in his own blood. But note the first two people that cross his path. Verse 31. Well, verse 30. And a certain man went down to, from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, there came down a certain priest by that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. The two characters, though, who we, we would most expect to help this guy in his need are the first two to just leave him there. They just leave him. They see him. They see him dying, probably near death as it was, and they just leave him to die. They just leave him to lie in his own blood in no better condition than the thieves that robbed him. They leave him no better. And these guys were religious leaders. They were, they were traveling along a familiar road. The priests were commissioned to serve terms in the temple of Jerusalem. So the priests would travel this road a lot. This was a familiar road. And the Levite, he is really what you would call a priest's assistant. He would help out in the temple doing some of the sacrifices and whatnot. And so these, they probably weren't traveling together. Maybe they were. They came by. This was, they were going along a familiar way. And um, whatever their business that day, whatever their errand was, it was more important to them than the life of this bloodied Jew. That's implied in the text. It's not, it doesn't come out and say that he's a Jew. But it's implied in the text that this man is a Jew. And they don't even care about him enough to stop and help him. And the blood of this innocent journeyman garnered no more attention than a mere look. The priest, he just stepped around him. He didn't even just look at him. He just kind of saw him out of the corner of his eye and he stepped around him. The Levite kind of like looked at him really quickly and just kept going on along his way. And I think, first of all, this should just make us make our blood boil. How can these men who claim to be religious leaders and God-fearing men just ignore this guy who is dying in his time of greatest need? This should just make our blood boil. They thought only of themselves. But even this is not really the point that Jesus is making. Because... What more could these two men of religion do? See, these men who claim to be experts on the law, they were just following the law. Numbers 4.16 says that, that, you should, that it forbids men who are in the temple to touch one that is slain, or else they would be considered unclean. So to them, they were following the law. And I think this vividly shows a picture that law-keeping 
is, is useless when it comes to the matter of salvation. The law offers no recourse for lawbreakers and it offers no mercy for those who's messed up. There's only one who can meet our needs. And that's this certain Samaritan, verse 33. So this priest and this Levite, they leave this guy to just die alone on the road to Jericho. But verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Of the many things that are worth unpacking here, I think the first and most obvious is the fact of the nationality of the helper. It says in verse 33, a certain Samaritan. And that's important. Because if you're familiar with, with Bible history, you'll know and you'll be familiar with the, just the animosity that the Jews and the Samaritans had with each other. It, it, it was just filled with, with racial overtones and just there was just so much animosity and hatred that had built up between these two people groups. The Samaritans were considered half-breed pagans. They had invaded uh, um, the Israelites' territory back during the Babylonian captivity, and they had brought in all their idol worship. And then they had intermarried with the Israelites, and so then they just, they just brought in all these new things, and they were hated by the Jews. They were hated by them. They were scorned by the Jews, seen as lesser and inferior. And the animosity between these two races back, uh, dates back to that time. But even then, racial animosity and racial harmony, as you can, uh, you can gather from this text, is not Jesus' main point. I think he just kind of throws this in as extra. He's talking to Jewish experts on the law, and I think just to show them the length of the love of Christ and the depth of the love of Christ, he just throws in this little thing as extra. Yeah, not two Jewish religious leaders helped this guy, but a certain Samaritan. Now, now, chew on that. I think that's what Jesus was saying. Chew on that, guys. It would have been unthinkable for these religious leaders, these lawyers, to accept the fact that a Samaritan went out of his way to help a poor and helpless Jew. But Jesus wraps up his illustration. Verse 36. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, that's the lawyer, he that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said unto him, go and do thou likewise. Now, I think what's interesting about the lawyer's response to Jesus' story is that when Jesus asked, who was this man's neighbor? Who was the true neighbor in this story? And the lawyer says, just the guy who showed mercy. He couldn't even pull himself to say the name Samaritan. He just couldn't even, he couldn't even get it out of his mouth. Just the guy who showed mercy. I see your point, Jesus. But what is the point? Because the popular and common application of this passage would be to say, now which neighbor are you? Which one are you? Are you the priest? Are you the Levite? Or are you the Samaritan? And this type of application is acceptable, but I think it misses the point. Because what question was Jesus trying to answer? See, if you answer the question, which neighbor are you, this puts the burden of the story on you, identifying with the Good Samaritan. And if you're not measuring up to his level of kindness and generosity and compassion, then you are failing. 
So if you're not measuring up to this, you are failing. You're not being a, what, a, a true neighbor, as the point is. So the lesson then becomes, be a good Samaritan or else. And, we, and that, this sort of moralizes the story. It moralizes the story of Jesus' parable into just be nice. Just be kinder. Be nicer. Go and do thou likewise. Yes, this was one of the points that Jesus was making. It's easy to see that. He wanted to drive home the fact that, that, that a true neighbor will go out of his way to care for the well-being and for the help and the health of others. The subplot of the story is that believers should recognize the ways that we have been uncaring and, and apathetic towards the, the needs of others. And we might come to church week in and week out and we hear messages and messages on the doctrines of grace and the love of Christ. And if that doesn't propel us into loving others, then are we really worshiping? Are we really learning anything? The Apostle Paul makes that very clear. I'm going to read the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods and to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. The point is, if you can have all this knowledge, you can have all this religious doing, but if you're not loving your neighbors, though not loving the people that are near you, then you're not really loving. That's one of the points that Jesus was making. True love overcomes any barrier and it risks its life to render help to those in need. Being a true neighbor means to show uncommon care, just like the Samaritan was. It was uncommon for him to show care and to the extent that he went to, to a Jew. And that's what love means. That's what true, being a true neighbor means. It means, as this passage says, showing love to your enemies. That's what Jesus said, love your enemies and, and do good to them that hate you. But the driving force, I think, of this story is not for us to identify with the Good Samaritan and notice all of our deficiencies. I think it's to identify with the incapacitated Jew and realize our deadness. See, in a vacuum, if you just read those verses that I read, I think coming away from it with that moral, that just be nicer to your neighbors, is honorable. I think it's the right way to come out. But you can't just read those verses. As with any portion of the Bible, no matter where you are, uh, just like the three most important words in real estate are location and location and location. And so the three most important words in biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. It's really important to know where you are and what's been going on, especially in the Gospels, especially who Jesus is talking to. And so if we ha- what we have to do is get a bigger picture of what Jesus has been doing in this conversation with this lawyer. And so the context is absolutely critical. What drove Jesus to tell this story? And it wasn't just the question, who's my neighbor? It was his other question. Look at verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer, the same guy, stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? 
And he, answering, said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. So, that's their previous conversation. And as the case is throughout the Gospels, these religious leaders, these religious somebodies were trying to tempt Jesus. They were trying to test him. You can look throughout all the Gospels. This question is a common one. It's recorded in all of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what they were trying to do is test Jesus on his knowledge of the Mosaic Law. And the, the point being is if he, if he countered one point of it, if he tried to defy it in any way, they could just ridicule him and rule him out as a Messiah because he was making claims as a Messiah. And they thought that if he could just, if they, if they could just, just uh, rule out any chance that he was interpreting the law correctly, they, they got him. So anytime they were near him, they were testing Jesus. As it says, they were tempting him. The scribes and Pharisees were ardent adherents to the Mosaic Law, and always they were seeking to destruct Jesus' views of it. And over and over again, Jesus just allayed their tests and just left them dumbfounded. And such is the case here. The emphasis on this lawyer's question is on, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? As if it's his doing that equals eternal life. It's as if what he can do can get this reward. That's what he was thinking. As if it depended on him. But salvation is not concerned with your doing. It's concerned with your believing. What did Jesus say in John 6? This is the work of God that you believe on him who he hath sent. In the most famous verse in the Bible probably, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him hath eternal life. Jesus turns the question around. This guy asks, what shall I do? And I think Jesus was like, well, you're the expert, so why don't you tell me? That's what he's saying there. But he's, what readest thou? The lawyer, though, responds correctly. That's the summary that Jesus gave of the laws from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus uh, 19, that you should just love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But the lawyer persists, instead of responding to such an overwhelming answer as this, to, how's that possible? I can't love like that. How can I love like that? Basically, he's saying, as it says, he was trying to justify himself. He was trying to say, yeah, I'm doing that. So, what's the point? I'm doing that. He, he was thinking that he was measuring up to God's standard. The implications of Jesus' words here is that if you, if you want to go on this avenue, if you endeavor to inherit eternal life by your doing, then you got to be perfect. You have to be absolutely perfect. It's not just being nicer, it's loving perfectly. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. It's 100% holiness, 24-7, 365 your love for God and for others must be motivated not out of something that you can get for yourself, but only something that you can give for others. And it's the summary of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Remember that in Matthew 5, and I think it goes through Matthew chapter 7. The whole time, it's really Jesus' uh, commentary on the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, you think that inheriting eternal life means not committing adultery? No, it's what you're thinking about. You think inheriting eternal life means not going out and killing people? No, it's not even wanting, wanting to do it. It's not even hating them. It's anger in your heart. He emphasized the law. 
to the point where you can't keep it. And that's the point. The inference of the text is that this lawyer was trying to say, yeah, I'm doing that. He thought that he was pulling it off. And it's this audacity of the lawyer that, where he was trying to say, yeah, I'm pulling it off, that sparks Jesus to tell this story, that you're not pulling it off. You, you're not as good as you think you are. It's the same question that he got in Luke chapter 18. If you flip over there, you'll remember this story, this little scene. It's the same basic question. The rich young ruler, remember this? Verse 18. And a certain ruler, that's a ruler of the church. He was probably a member of the Sanhedrin. He said, asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. <laughs> Look at that audacity of this ruler. I'm doing all that. Really? When was the last time you had a lustful thought? When was the last time you got mad at your brother? When was the last time that you got mad at your children? When was the last time you got mad at your wife? You're pulling this off? You're not pulling it off. It's a gross disservice to God's Word, I think, to come away with it and think, I'm pulling this off. I'm doing it. And we're perverting the law of God if we think that we can keep it. This brings the law down to your standards. Jesus was raising the bar. He was raising the bar in Matthew 5. Look, this is what you have. If you want to do it by doing, if you want to get eternal life by your doing and by your works, this is the standard. This is the bar you have to measure up to. The point of the story isn't to show you how you can become like the Good Samaritan. It's to show you how far away, like being the Good Samaritan, you actually are. And we're not supposed to see ourselves like, we're supposed to see ourselves as the traveler who's beaten and bruised and left for dead. Because guess what? That's you before Jesus came into your life. That's you. That's me. Bruised by sin, by Satan. Left for dead by sin, by Satan. Robbed of hope. Lying in the, on the own wreckage that we created. Crushed by sin. As the Apostle Paul says, dead in trespasses and sins. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, we are utterly and completely powerless to save ourselves. We are utterly powerless. One writer says it this way, unless we have felt ourselves lost, we have not yet been saved. Unless you have felt yourself as this bruised and battered and beaten down Jewish traveler, you have not been saved by the grace of God. No amount of law keeping, no amount of religious following can save you. If you're depending on the pillars of works and religion, you will fall. And when you come to the end of days, God will meet you with those very solemn words, I never knew you, depart from me. You see, the grace of God works with those who accept their deadness. One writer says it like this, and I love this line, Jesus came to call sinners, not the pseudo-righteous, not those who think they're pulling it off, not those who think that they have or are measuring up to God's standard of perfection. Jesus came to save sinners. He's the only one that can save us, that can heal us, restore us, like He did this Jewish traveler. 
By His grace, Jesus comes to those who need Him the most. The lost, the broken, the weary, the wounded. Those are His ministry. You want a picture of Jesus' mission statement as He came to earth? Well, Luke 4.18 says it. This, Jesus was stood up in the temple and He was asked to read. And He picked a particular verse from Isaiah 61. It was a particular verse that was talking about the coming Messiah, the coming Redeemer. He stands up and says this in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he hath, because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. That's Jesus' mission. God sees us in mess, in a mess that we've made, in shambles, in sin, in the gutter, in the mayhem that we have just created for ourselves, and He comes to us. Notice what it says in, back in Luke chapter 10, verse 33. This is important because look at that phrase, came, in the, but a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was. Verse 34, and went to Him. Jesus comes down to us. This is what makes the amazing fact of Jesus' incarnation so amazing. That God of glory, the One who created the heavens and the earth, He comes to us. He comes down to us. The Savior says to us, like it says in Ezekiel 34.11, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. In Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Matthew 9, they that behold need not a physician. I will have mercy and not sacrifice for I am not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This was Jesus' mission. He came with a purpose, a divine purpose, a divine motive. The law cannot bring us close to God, but glory be to God, the gospel brings God close to us. That's the glorious fact of this section right here, that Jesus came to us, just as this Samaritan came to where he was. This shows us that even while we are perpetually turned away from God, you know, the Reformers had an interesting uh, definition of sin. Back during the Reformation, the days of Martin Luther and all those guys, they defined sin as man turned in on himself. So he was perpetually bent on himself. And I think what this shows, that even while we are perpetually bent on ourselves and what we can gain and what we can get, Jesus is forever bent towards you, to saving you, to seeking and saving the lost. Let me read you this quote really quick because I think this is what is amazing that your belief and hope as a Christian does not lie in a doctrine or a creed or anything like that. It lies in this person, the good Samaritan, the gracious Samaritan, the Savior and Redeemer. Listen to what this lecturer says. He says, The prerogative of our Christian faith, the secret of its strength is that all which it has and all which it offers is laid up in a living person. This is what may, has made it strong while so much else has proved weak, that it has Christ for a middle point, that it has not a circumference without a center, that it has not merely a deliverance but a deliverer, not only a redemption but a redeemer 
For oh, how vast is the difference between submitting ourselves to a complex set of rules and casting ourselves upon a beating heart, between accepting a system and cleaving to a person. If you believe in Jesus Christ and trust in His grace, that's who you're believing in. Not just redemption, but a Redeemer, one who has come to you, come to where you are in your sin, in your shambles, and He has brought you up. He has raised you from dead to life. If you want an even more vivid picture of that, read Ezekiel chapter 37, by the way. That's the vision the, where the prophet Ezekiel received the vision. You know, he, he is praying to God and he sees the vision of the valley of the dry bones. Remember that story in Ezekiel 37? He sees this vision. This is dry bones, a wasteland of all these forgotten soldiers of a battle long ago. And he sees this vision and God says, speak to them. And he speaks and they, they form and they form a body. And he says, speak to them again and breathe into them the breath from the four winds. And then to the Holy Spirit. And they begin to have flesh and bodies. And they raise from the dead. The immediate, uh, the immediate application of that story was to show what God was going to do with the Israelite kingdom. But it also shows what He does with us. Because without God, without Jesus, you are nothing but dry, dusty, dead bones. And God raises you back to life. See, while we incessantly seek to save ourselves by doing, like this lawyer was, Jesus is trying to show us that your pathetic attempts to do so won't measure up. God's standard is up here. Don't bring it down here. God's standard is up here. Like the lawyer, we think that our deeds are what saves us, but God's standard is the perfect and perfect and righteous holiness of Jesus Christ. The good news of this story and the good news of all of Scripture is that you can't measure up. But guess what? There's one who did for you. That's the good news. That you can't measure up. You can't fulfill all these things that God requires of you. But Jesus did. You can't love perfectly like the Good Samaritan does, but Jesus does. We aren't like the Good Samaritan, but Jesus is what the law demands, Spurgeon said, the gospel produces in us. Our hope isn't resting or shouldn't rest on our progression and all these things. Our hope is in God's incarnation as the embodiment of grace, Jesus Christ. The good news of this parable and the good news in the entire Bible is the condescending love of God. See, the focus of this Bible is Jesus' substitution. What He did for you on the cross. That's your hope. Jesus substituting Himself for you. What some people have called the glorious exchange where Jesus took your sin and He gave you His perfect holiness, wiping away forever your record of debt and sin. And He gave you His love and His righteousness and His grace in its place. The glorious exchange. Jesus substituting Himself for you. That's your hope. That's the good news of this story. The Samaritan came where he was. Let me read you this other quote. I, I like to quote people. Uh, if, this does, if you don't like that, I'm sorry. But I like to read a lot. So I read a lot of people who've said a lot of things better than I can say them. And so I feel like I should honor them in that way. One writer says it this way. They may have lost sight of him, 
but He not of them. God sends out His grace to search them out. The sun of His bosom comes down in quest of them. He shrinks not from entering the place of exile. He becomes a banished man for them. Jesus lives in exile's life. He endures in exile's shame. He dies in exile's death. He is buried in an exile's tomb. All for us, the outcasts, the exiles. He takes our place of banishment that we may take His place in the Father's many mansions. He stoops to our place of shame that we may rise to His place of honor and glory. All that kept us in banishment and that made it needful for God to banish us, He takes upon Himself. This is the Savior, the Redeemer, the Substitute. He takes your exile and puts it on Himself. He takes your banishment and puts it on Himself. This is what Jesus does. And so while we may get distracted with our self-salvation projects and our self-salvation endeavors by trying to do, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, it is finished. Never for a second does God's love waver from us. It's not hesitant. It's not fluctuating. God's salvation has no red tape. It has no strings attached. It has no fine print. God's love is a stream that never freezes, a fountain that never falls, a sun that never sets, and a shield that never breaks. That's what you are believing in. That's the love of this good Samaritan, this perfectly gracious Samaritan. So believer, see yourself first as this traveler and be made aware of the great lengths As Paul says, the height, the depth, and the the amazing breadth of God's love for you. The length that God went to save you, to seek you out, and be stirred by that grace to show grace to others. See yourself also in this priest, in this Levite, and, and make sure you're not trusting in your doing to save you. Doing will leave you dead. Unbeliever, see yourself as this traveler. And see the abounding grace that waits for you and that waits from God to deal with you in forgiveness. This gracious Samaritan is the only one who can minister to your need because he's the only one that can raise the dead. That's the point of the story. To show you the amazing lengths that God goes to seek and to save the lost. Bearing our shame, bearing our banishments, taking it upon His shoulders and going all the way, finishing the work of salvation. It is finished. That's your hope tonight. That's your hope every day. That's your hope every single waking minute that you're allowed to stay on this earth. And this love, this grace, this is what propels you to hope, propels you to love. Let's pray.